So welcome, depending on where you're. Uh, good morning, good evening, good uh, night, good uh, early, early morning, depending on where you're coming from in the world. In the U.S., we're not that well known for a lot of health issues uh, being the greatest in terms of preventive medicine. We're not uh, that well known for things like stress and mental health. And actually, we're more well known for not doing that that part very well. But we're getting ready to go into a holiday in the U.S. that we call Thanksgiving. And actually, Thanksgiving is a very, very healthy uh, thing to do from a mental health perspective. Uh, hopefully one day we'll get to cover a little bit more uh, about the idea of just appreciating where we are, what we're doing, and um, and maybe not eating too much turkey and other stuff, eating too much, but um, it's a good thing to think about. Today, we're going to be covering part two of another thing that's just not that well uh, recognized. You know, sleep it, for the next decade or so, at least from a health perspective, is, is analogous to what smoking was. Um, a couple of a few decades ago when they were just beginning to realize that smoking might be important to health. And it's like, Oh yes. Smoking became one of the, the number one cause of death. And we're just now beginning to recognize a few decades later that sleep is a really, really big deal. Uh, we've had Dr. Parm Dedia on talking about it uh, a few weeks ago. We got about halfway through uh, part of his, uh, his primary discussion about sleep. We're going to talk about part two on that. Um, for those of you who uh, who haven't seen the channel or haven't been uh, involved recently, we had Dave Feldman talk about lean mass hyper responders uh, last week. It was a great uh, discussion. We had a lot of fun. And we learned a whole lot about that group of people. It's not everybody. In fact, most people don't do this, but some people do. They start eating low carb and then their LDL, quote, bad cholesterol, which is an inappropriate label, but their LDL cholesterol shoots out the roof. It goes way up, but HDL goes up as well and triglycerides go down. So you get this real mixed message. It used to be a mixed message for a lot of us, but it's becoming clearer and clearer to many of us that that's really a healthy state. Um, However, I get calls all the time from people who go on a low-carb diet. Their LDL shoots up. They panic. Their doctors panic. They put them on statins. They stop the low-carb diet. And they just do a bunch of stuff that's not only necessary, but probably not even healthy. So if you have uh, questions about that, you can get the full content on the YouTube Live that we did last week. As we usually do, we'll be cutting it up into some more bite-sized uh, uh, formats and making it available as well for those of you that don't have 90 minutes to sit and watch. Um, we've got other items too. The discussion with Dr. Craig Bax a couple of weeks ago about his uh, new butterfly. It's a screen for a screen. It's a, it's a screen for CIMT. Uh, CIMT, a good CIMT is still very, very difficult to get. And uh, this is a great way to start getting a, 
a heads up or a jump on what their, your CIMT might actually tell you if you're not able to, uh, to get a full-blown CIMT. Uh, the week before that, we had um, our doc, our uh, medical director, and the Alabama Project, Dr. Ryan Rayner, uh, talk with James about a hidden atrial fibrillation. Big, big deal. If you, uh, you might not know it, but I have that. I did a whole series, about a dozen, maybe 15 or 16 videos on what we call paroxysmal atrial fib. And why is that important? It's become uh, very clear that paroxysmal or hidden atrial fibrillation is a major cause of strokes. Um, so again, a lot of very interesting information over the past few weeks. And um, again, we'll have some more inf interesting information this week. For those of you who've never seen the channel at all, don't know anything about our content, we're here to try to help with a major gap in, in health. Um, <clears throat> the, the number one killer uh, in the U.S. and most of the world now is heart attack. Uh, stroke is usually still the top three. Stroke is still the number one cause of permanent disability. Um, and one item that's that's beginning to overtake uh, to overtake them is Alzheimer's. And guess what? The major cause for every one of those things is the same: undiagnosed prediabetes or diabetes. And guess what else? There's a reason why it's undiagnosed. The science is really clear. The vast majority of doctors do not know how to diagnose prediabetes or diabetes, let alone how to manage it. So yes, I'm not the only person uh, telling this, but I had another patient. If you'd like to see me, we're still seeing, I'm still seeing a few patients. We still have a few slots open. I had another one just yesterday who uh, has had some, uh, some cardiac problems. His doc wants to do a stent. His, uh, he got deeper and deeper into this, found that he had a positive calcium score, started watching my videos. And sure enough, we got an, an OGTT with a, um, or oral glucose tolerance test with an insulin survey. His fasting glucose was 81. That's why his doctors always thought he was great in terms of no diabetes, no insulin resistance, no prediabetes. But his one hour glucose was 276 and his two hour glucose was 226. He had not only, you know, he's one of those guys who said, hey, doc, I took your test. My docs have always thought I'm fine. My blood sugar's great. Well, I don't have prediabetes. I've got full-blown diabetes. No wonder I am heading down the path for a heart attack and stroke. So that's what this channel is all about, helping people recognize the real risks for heart attack and stroke and do something about them. Because unfortunately, medicine's a buyer beware space. Your docs don't know enough usually about how to diagnose this. So we've got, we've got um, webinars, We've got a bunch of different ways to find this out, to work with us. Webinars where you can actually get the testing, review the testing with a group of us. If you're more private, you don't want to, um, to get the testing just yet. You just want to learn. We've got courses. They're very cheap. 
sometimes we've given tons of these away for free. Um, keep your eyes open for that. Uh, if you want to go ahead and get it, spend a couple of hours. Uh, usually it's no more than what, 29, 39 bucks. So within a couple of hours and, uh, the cost of a, of a, a couple of meals, you can find out, um, more than your doctor knows about what might be killing you or disabling you and neither you nor your doctor know it. Uh, if you want to see us, like I said, there's still a few slots available. They're closing up because of the, uh, the huge activities. We're having a lot of success in the Alabama project. Uh, we're getting, uh, we've gone from one to, uh, to two to looks like we will have three and uh, a couple more clinics uh, up and rolling in that space. And it's all about providing better health for folks. Oh, speaking of which, that's the Alabama project, the Jubilee, Jubilee primary care. If you're in the Alabama uh, area, uh, this is the way to see me. This is the way to, to get uh, the best primary care uh, available. Uh, you know, I keep getting more and more feedback. Uh, I, I made a few comments about the book that it was as dry as an encyclopedia. I'm, I'm getting more and more uh, folks writing in and uh, seeing me as patients and saying, Doc, you're not giving your book enough credit. It is good. I want to I, I've given a copy to my doc. And it's a it's about why getting a stress test is not really the best way to figure out if you have risk for heart attack and stroke. There are 15 million deaths each year associated with this. And what? I, I don't remember the statistic now. It's like 30 to 50 million stress tests that are being done. A stress test will not prevent heart attack. And guess what? It won't even predict it. Uh, Big Russ, Tim Russer is the poster boy for having, being a little bit worried and saying, hey, doc, I'm, my, I'm worried. Can we get a I, I'm, my blood pressure's going off the rails a little bit. Um, I may have a little bit of plaque. Can we just get a stress test? And yes, he went to his doc. He got a stress test. It, he passed it with flying colors. And then he died a sudden death when he was recording a show for, it was either Meet the Press or Face the Nation, and I always confuse those two. I don't think the name of the show is that important. What it what is important is if you're relying on a stress test for your health, be afraid, be very afraid. And this book will, again, tell you how and why to, uh, to do better than that. So let's go to Dr. Dedia and talk about sleep part two. Greetings, everyone. And Dr. Burr, thank you. Uh, the time I get a chance to hear you speak, it, it stimulates a lot of thoughts and it really also got me thinking, how am I gonna introduce this concept of sleep this time? So everyone, in terms of the spirit of Thanksgiving, I'm grateful to be here, partnering with Dr. Ford, be able to share any thoughts. You're gonna have questions, jokes, I want you to share all of them over the time. And this to topic of sleep, as you mentioned in terms of smoking, it's really interesting, I heard it years ago. When did smoking really change? when it became cool not to smoke. And now related to sleep, it has become cool to sleep. It used to be a badge of courage. Oh, I didn't need to sleep, I only slept an hour, I've been working off of no sleep, little sleep. 
And it is such a precious time now that it is that of high performers. But I want you to know we're all performers. We all are wishing to live our best days. We don't need to be Olympiads to perform. And therefore, sleep has really become a conversation that can help any other part of your life. First and foremost, we're here to talk about your health. We want you to have it. But sleep also governs the way we eat, the way we move, and also gives us an appreciation of physical health, mental, emotional, spiritual. So with that being said, what do we need to do to move into optimal sleep? And up here, what I wish to share is getting us into a few slides. So let's talk about what optimal sleep looks like. So first and foremost, this is the standard conversation and we'll bump it up to that of a 2.0, nothing to overwhelm us. First and foremost, we gotta get enough quantity of sleep. Worldwide, there's not enough of us that are getting our sleep. In other words, we wanna recommend extending the sleep time. That's actually the technical term in the textbook of sleep. So we wanna get quantity, but just getting enough sleep time isn't enough unless we're also getting quality of sleep. And sometimes you may be aware that you're getting quality of sleep, but sometimes you're not aware. A lot of people that are with a high tolerance for pain, stress and whatnot may miss it altogether, kind of like that undiagnosed atrial fibrillation that was mentioned. We'll go into this more, but we wanna get enough time and we wanna make sure we get quality. Now, I mentioned 2.0. If you're like me, you always wanted extra credit growing up. So here it is. Over time, I wanna also teach you the new science over the last six years about circadian rhythm. In other words, what time do we go to sleep and what time do we wake up? It hasn't been part of the medical literature here in the United States and that of Europe, but it's been a part of the Asian cultures for about 2000 years in terms of that. So we will talk about the importance of getting enough sleep time, but also not, not missing the fact that going to bed at a certain time might be helpful. So with no further ado, let's jump deeper into this part of the conversation. But before we go in any further, how many of us get confused? Now, I'm not trying to do something like the myth book um, that um, Dr. Brewer has fabulously put forward, but this is a bit of the sleep myths that are out there. How many of us wish we could sleep like a baby? Are babies the best sleepers? No. Who would be? You see there on the second line, teenagers. They're the rock stars of sleep and don't let anyone tell you any different. What do teenagers do? They get to sleep. They stay asleep. Have any of you tried to wake up a teenager before they're ready? <sighs> no, it's not even fun. It's nothing that you want to take on. So what I want us to all take a look at here, oops, is to understand this next line. Many people think, oh, we, ne we need less sleep as we get older. We tend to get less sleep as we get older, but it doesn't mean that we need less. We tend to acclimate to poor fragmented sleep. It was easy to get sleep when we we're young because our chemistry, our hormones all allowed for it. But almost all adults would benefit from seven to nine hours of sleep, seven to nine. Now, what happens as we get older? We get less of this thing called deep sleep and we're easier to wake up, call it more arousable. So I'm just introducing here that sleep will change as we get older, but therefore, as we get older, we got to make it more time. This isn't passive. And what you're going to hear me say over the coming discussions is that your daytime is going to set up your nighttime. So let's get quantity, let's get quality, and let's talk about circadian rhythm, knowing that we have to give sleep a forward thought, but it doesn't happen just because we're nice people. We've got to be proactive. The challenge is in the last hundred years, we've slept less. Ever since we've had the light bulb, we're getting less sleep. Our great grandparents slept an hour and a half to two hours longer than you and I. That's a sleep cycle. Once I define a sleep cycle, you won't want to donate it away anymore. This is the yummy stuff. 
thousands, tens and thousands of dollars can be spent on supplements to try to, to, try to create, recreate what sleep does for you. Get your sleep. That's one of the things that we want to take away from this. So seven to nine hours. Should we nap? Should we not nap? Let me be clear. First and foremost, get your sleep at night. That's the gold standard. Now, we do live in a 24-7 world, even more so than ever. This is a great demand in terms of supply chain, trying to get everything out there in the world. But whenever possible, give yourself the benefit of being a daytime person, because we do know there's some literature that says nighttime folks are putting a lot more stress on their heart. But if you are unable to get all your sleep at nighttime, use naps as a way to kind of fill up the opportunity to get toward that seven to nine hours. 10, 20, 30 minutes have best been discussed. Maybe in the future, Dr. Brewer and I can review, there was an interesting study out of Greece. They took more or less Greek men, thinking men were more likely to get heart disease than women. But nevertheless, that's what they did in the study. And what they found was that the groups that were all nappers were put into the study, and the people that stopped napping had more heart disease events. Hmm. So it's to say that they have not been getting enough quantity, quality, or all of it. But here it is. The bottom is a bit of the trick to the trade. How do you bring naps into your life if you're ready to do it? Avoid naps that are too long or too close to bedtime. Think of it like snacking. If you are snacking before dinner, how much of an appetite will you have? How easy is it to get to sleep or stay asleep? And if you have too big of a snack, will you have any of that appetite? So timing and quantity there. So Please do not memorize the slide. You do not get any better sleep by memorizing what stages of sleep are. I just want to introduce the concept of the heart, the brain, we're all connected within. We go from being awake. All I want you to see here is a lot of energy. Think of the accordion spring pushed together, lots of energy built up. As you drift into early sleep, stage one and two, the accordion starts to stretch out. Stage two has a few kinks, but it's probably doing a little processing here, memory, different type of opportunities are going on. I want you to know light sleep is probably the worst nomenclature we could have ever have given this. Light sleep makes it sound like unimportant. Like who here wants to be a light sleeper? None of us. So we want to make sure that we say light sleep is about 60% of your night, but here's the yummy stuff. Stage three and REM, better known as deep and dream sleep. When you take a look at these two, the recovery sleep and recovery sleep is that which we did as a teenager when we were the rock stars of sleep. And I want you to hear something. We can build up that of more deep sleep and dream sleep over time. It doesn't just happen, but it's one of the things that daytime, how we honor exercise, nutrition, and stress is going to be vitally important to giving ourselves the best deep sleep and dream sleep. Let me push us to understand why this is important. I am showing a graph and I apologize. There's so much here, but I'm going to simplify it. Just look here in the middle. This is hours of sleep right there in the middle. I start from zero hours all the way to eight. So we're recommending seven to nine, call it eight hours of sleep, right? So what do you see more of here? So what you're seeing is we go from being awake, stage one, stage two, and that yummy deep sleep. And there's also some of this dream. So as you see throughout the night, we go in and out of these different stages. But in the first half of the night, what do you see more of, my friends? You see of this stuff called stage three, which is another way of saying deep sleep. This is great. Deep sleep, ready, is physical repair. Puts in growth hormone and repairs this thing called ATP. 
You don't need to know any of this stuff. Know that this is a billion dollar industry that you make every single night. So one of the great things I want you to know is that the first half of night you're doing physical repair. The second half of the night, an important part of the brain, it has a name called the limbic system. All you need to know, it clears the mental and emotional stress and distress. How wise is that? Mental and emotional health is taking a greater conversation in the recent set of years, and it ought to. So we're not just physical, we're mental and we're emotional. And here it is. I have so many people, and many of you will might nod your head while you're hearing me say this. Hey, doc, I get to sleep just fine. But you know, in the middle of the night, after about three, four hours, I wake up and I can't shut it off. I hear this all the time. So think of it, you paid off your physical exhaustion, you're not as exhausted, and now what? The mind is starting to clear the push and the pull, the heartache of the day you just lived. Now, what I want us to know is this is very typical, but of course, one of the things we want to do is to be able to get to sleep rather than having our mind go on hyperdrive. It happens to every single human being, but what we want to do is talk about what we can do during the daytime. Now, I hate to wait till future iterations to give you the, the message, but we'll reinforce it later. What's the best way to get some of this physical repair? Be active during the daytime, burn up energy. I want people to move. I want people to basically use their muscles, do lean muscle work called resistance training, do aerobic work, be more physically tired, but wait. If you do it so much, you're in pain. Does pain help you sleep? No, not at all. So we don't want to overdo it. Little is good, more is better, but to only a point. And what I want all of us to do is have a practice during our daytime, perhaps at night, to clear the stress of the day, to maybe do your to-do list, talk it out, speak it out. Make sure that we honor some time to clear our stress. Breathing, meditation, mindfulness, any of it. So what I want you and I to appreciate, daytime sets up nighttime. You know, I don't hear enough people saying that. So if you take nothing else away from anything I've set up to now, daytime sets up nighttime. The way you move, I should also say eat, because if you're eating more healthy foods, what I mean by that is your leans, greens, and beans, those kind of foods, things that are closer to nature that your great-grandmother would have given you. And then also giving yourself time to honor your mental and emotional health. These are great recipes of how daytime can now flow into that of our night. Sleep is just not what you do for eight hours laying in bed. It really is a part of everything else we're doing. And if you needed one more reason to think about sleep, Dr. Brewer talked about it, memory. What's good for the heart is good for the mind. We know that and the data on that is more robust than ever. When you get sleep the first half of the night, we call it declarative memory. You bring in facts. You have Polaroid snapshots and little post-it notes from the day, and now you're putting them into your brain but you're just putting in facts. I'll date myself a little bit. You might remember the TV show Dragnet. I want you to know good old Sergeant Joe Friday, just the facts. It's bringing factoids into your brain. The second half of the night, what is it doing? It's connecting different thoughts and pictures and connecting to them. Things that were told to you during the daytime, they weren't necessarily connected and you're making connections. And as if you have a file cabinet, you're gonna open up that file cabinet and connect new thoughts to previous thoughts. That's creativity, that's problem solving. Think about how cool sleep is. Physical repair, honoring our, not just our IQ, but also helping our EQ, 
bringing in facts and helping us create and more or less move through problems. EQ, emotional quotient. Yes, yes, so important. One thing on this slide before I forget, there's a myth that we should be asleep and unconscious to the time we wake up. I want you to know it's very typical every 90, 120 minutes to have a brief awakening. Now, a brief awakening doesn't mean, oh, I'm awake and I'm starting my day. Think of children. They'll roll over, they might open their eyes a little bit, smack their lips, and they'll get comfortable on the pillow again. Do they wake up saying, mom, dad, I woke up four times last night. Can we call Uncle Parm, get this thing all figured out, make sure I'm getting my deep sleep and my dream sleep? Thankfully not. So tonight, when you have that brief awakening, smile, take your breath, put your head on the pillow, know that it's natural and normal. Now, of course, there might be different things that are going on medically that we need to look at and we don't want to miss because we want to make sure that poor sleep isn't just a need for another pill. It isn't just something else that needs to be uh, more or less pushed through. We need to understand the underlying factors there. But as we look at the IQ, that EQ, Dr. Brewer, is these conversations are ones that you find with people wanting to honor their, again, their brain health with these conversations? Yeah. And while you've been talking, I, one of the things I've been, I've been putting a couple of notes in there. Um, brain health is critical. I mean, it's, it's the reason why people want to live longer. They don't want to live, uh, after people have worked with me for about a year, some of them come to me this way, but most of them about a year, they say, you know, I started with you to prevent a heart attack. Now I'm okay. If I have a heart attack and die instantly, I don't want to lose my mind. Yeah. I don't want to, uh, I, I don't want to, to get into Alzheimer's. And again, as you're, as you're pointing out, one of the major benefits regarding sleep has to do with our emotional health, and mental health. So I, I'm not sure if that answered your question or not. I love it. I love it. It does indeed. Since you brought up Alzheimer's and that of our mental health, whether it's connected or not, we know again, anything good for the heart is good for the brain. This literature came out at the sleep meetings about eight, nine years ago. Every single night we clear out these things called amyloid and tau proteins. Don't need to memorize those little fancy tidbits. But do know if you open up the book of Alzheimer's, they know, ah, at autopsy, these individuals have a buildup of amyloid and some of these tau proteins. So there has been a growing connection between brain health and also that of sleep health. But the reason why I'm here, and I might've said it before, there was a very important study that came out around the year 2000. Multiple medical centers participated in something called the sleep heart health study. What they found was sleep, in particular sleep apnea, was connected to that of heart health. Before that point, sleep was just this feel-good field. Mm. It's nice, we like it. And don't get me wrong, we want to feel good. There's nothing to miss about that. But when it became about heart health, guess what happened to sleep? It became real medicine. It was not this woo-woo, foo-foo, the, you know, the thing you talk to people that are a bit of belly acres. I don't want any of you to miss the fact, feeling good, is an important part of it, but heart health and sleep is no longer a discussion. It is only getting stronger every single year. Dr. Burr, I'm sure you've been seeing more details about that over the years. I did, and I put a couple of comments there as well. 
Uh, you know, we we started off some of this with a quick reference to hidden or paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. One of the major drivers of a paroxysm of of episodes of fibrillation, if you have <coughs> fibrillation, is sleep uh, disordered sleep. Yes. So uh, big, big driver of, and, and so as you, it's to your point. We're not talking about uh, you know a feel good, and we you know we think we sleep if we sleep better, we'll have better attitudes, and we'll and our heart will uh, will somehow respond to that. We're talking about hardwired one to one connection, improved sleep, decreased paroxysmal uh, atrial fibrillation. Another hardwired response, uh, there was a study, and I've referred to it a few times as we get into this sleep issue, and I've got the comment in there. It's really clear. Uh, someone may, you may think you got good sleep last night or enough sleep, but it's really clear. If you did not get that deep sleep and REM sleep in your sleep last night, you're going to have increased insulin resistance, prediabetes or even diabetes for the next 48 hours. Now, you know that again, as you as you mentioned, we're talking about a hardwired one to one response. And so people might say, well, well, how does that happen? We're not completely sure, but there are some very obvious potential mechanisms, one of them being something that that you mentioned in the first episode about. I, um, I think it's. I think it's deep sleep helps us with our hormonal readjustment. Isn't that right? Yes. Yes. And guess what? A couple of those hormones may have to do with things like cortisol, uh, epinephrine, things that have a direct impact on our insulin resistance. So again, this is a very uh, hardwired science. It's not uh, touchy feely, airy kind of stuff. I, I want to build on that, if I may. We do know every single night there's a normal, natural dipping of blood pressure. Not like low, but a dip. Dip means just subtle. And if we don't get that dip, we're going to have higher tone, higher stress in the cardiovascular system all night long. So that's one of the things that we do often see is in terms of if you don't have a dipping phenomenon at night, you'll tend to have a higher blood pressure systemically over a 24-hour period of time. And some people even say that will show up during the daytime eventually. On the next one, they do these things called sleep deprivation tests, which I like, but it misses sometimes the importance. Because it's, we say, well, come on, I get some sleep. We don't completely cut out sleep. But to make the point, they stop people completely from sleeping. And what do they find? They become insulin resistant for the next day plus. And then they have some smaller studies that show limited sleep or disrupted sleep. They're also showing insulin resistance for a period of time if they are induced to have poor sleep. So, Dr. Brewer, this is going back to the discussions about heart health, blood pressure health, but also blood, um, blood sugar health, all related to it. And on top of that, inflammation. Sleep is an anti-inflammatory. It's an antioxidant. It helps with modulating blood sugar and blood pressure. Kind of cool. And as you said, it gives you benefits, performance here, and it sets up the risk for things in the future. Because sometimes if we're just wanting to benefit something five to 10 years from now, it's not as easy to feel invested. But sleep is the promise of getting benefits now and later. Pretty awesome, a fun discussion. While, I, while, we've, uh, while we're 
touching on these topics, I have to uh, uh, to interrupt you again with a comment from one of our viewers, and we'll we'll cover these again later. But it's so on point to what you were talking about a few minutes ago. You you know Dr. David Wright? Yes. He's he made a comment uh, just a minute ago about a science. 2020 article presented the case for sleep problems as the final common pathway for developing dementia uh, due to inadequate clearance of neurotoxins, you know, toxins in the brain produced during wake time. So thank you again, David. Really appreciate that, uh, that input. Point on. Exact. Now, some of you are saying, Parm, you are a physician. What are you looking for in terms of some of those things that can be disrupting our sleep, either reducing the quantity or the quality, making it more difficult? And don't memorize this, but get a flavor, get a feel. This is kind of what goes through my mind as I'm sitting having a conversation with a person. Is that person able to breathe well? Pina means air, A means without. This is a full collapse, but there's its cousin that's related to it called partial collapsing, so a full or partial collapse of the airway for 10 seconds. As you can imagine, choking would put a lot of stress on the body, a lot of stress on the heart, a lot of stress on the brain. Now, this one is a bugaboo, snoring. In a perfect world, which we'll work on eventually, but the, the opportunity is about basically half to two thirds of people who snore don't breathe well at night. Remember our old CPR classes? We called it the ABC. If you don't have an airway, you don't breathe well, and then you don't circulate well. We got to go back to the original ABCs. So a big part of why sleep health and heart health are connected, it started with the sleep apnea conversation. Now, I'm going to take a little bit of dig at myself, because I'm in the sleep medicine world, in addition to doing internal medicine, executive health, integrative medicine, all these other kind of opportunities to help people. But what we do know is a lot of people associate sleep medicine with sleep apnea only. Because you go to a sleep professional, they give you a sleep test, they tell you if apnea or no, and you get a machine, done. Or a pill in between. And I'm going to be honest, those sometimes are necessary. But there's so much more to sleep than whether you have apnea or not apnea. And also, please know, before you want to hang up um, this conversation at all, is not everybody needs a machine in order to treat their apnea. So we're going to be careful not to make this all about one topic, but do know with you not breathing well, that's one of the major challenges of getting to sleep, staying asleep, waking up, feeling refreshed. The next topic, periodic limb movements. Now this has been called when it's disrupting sleep, restless leg syndrome. It's a misnomer. What I mean, it misses the boat. Restless legs, it can be the arms, it can be the torso. So it's restless syndrome more than it is restless leg syndrome. Okay, uh, Dr. Brewer, you talked about some of your medical history. I have restless leg syndrome. Mm. And here it is. Some people develop it. Some people genetically also have a predisposition. My father has it. I never met my grandfather, dad's dad. He had it. So I want you and I to be on guard looking at this. There's a medical workup to rule out causes, but there's also things to look at. What it is, and this is confusing, it's not flopping around like a fish out of water. I'm going to use the feet as an example, but remember, it's also the torso and the upper limbs. For the feet, it can be rubbing your feet at night, fanning out your toes, needing to stretch, 
you get in bed. Nope, that's not the right position. Nope, that, it's just all night long, it's there. But wait, night to night, it can vary. Some nights, you just would rather have your legs taken away from your body for a period of time. And other nights, it's not even there. So when I talk to people about it, they're like, yeah, well, maybe, sort of. And then a month later, like, can we talk? And that's the thing, that this is something you need to take a look at and get an appreciation. Now, which I've not seen in the literature clearly, other than small reports, but I had a mentor pointed out to me, and I can't unsee what you when I see it. Bruxism is clinching or grinding. Two-thirds of people, as my mentor said to me, who, who grind or clench are also with restlessness. I look so smart when I point that out to people. By the way, I, Brux, I've cracked two teeth in my head. Please, if your dentist has brought this up, please pay attention, be curious about this, and then start asking the, the questions about restless legs. And what this has been shown to be related to is, if you imagine, the adrenaline that's coming up with the twitch, the move, higher blood pressure at night, greater vascular tone, as we call it, meaning a lot more stress on the blood vessels. That doesn't even sound like a good thing, right? So please give it an appreciation of this because there is a subtle connection. So can I interrupt to clarify a couple of things? Number one, just a term, bruxism is basically grinding your teeth. Or clenching. Because, or clenching. yeah, people refer to one or the other. The other one is um, what you just said. You start looking at all of these different disruptions of sleep, sleep apnea, uh, periodic limb movements, bruxism. All of them are very much associated with two things. Number one, loss of significant deep sleep and loss of sleep. And number two, epinephrine firing. Yeah. So once you begin to think of that and connect the dots on that, it becomes much, much easier to understand how you know, our our heart is a machine. It needs to rest and recuperate. It just like a a a, a um, our car needs fuel, um, and some and it needs preventive maintenance. Well, the deep sleep deep sleep is the time that we do that. When we have these issues with sleep, not only are we robbing the heart of its ability to and the brain and the rest of our body of its ability to, uh, to heal, we're also gunning the engine. When, when, if you get, you can go to YouTube and, and look up uh, some videos of people with sleep apnea. And it's, it, it you don't re at first, you think of the idea as funny. You know, you see it on the old street, two, Three Stooges uh, comedies, <laughs> different snoring things. But you see some of the examples on, um, uh, on, on YouTube and you begin to realize this is horrible. It, people are not able to sleep for like up to a minute. At a, I mean, not sleep for up or not breathe for up to a minute at a time. And um, you're, they're getting huge epinephrine firing. And that is when they're supposed to be letting their brain and their heart uh, heal. I love how you're phrasing it because this is making it less theoretical and more terra firma, putting it on the ground. As we build on that epinephrine, look at that fourth bullet point, pain and discomfort. When we hurt, it is not easy to be able to get comfortable. It's not easy to stay asleep. 
we, there used to be a statement from the American Academy of Sleep, either take care of pain or help their sleep. Guess what they're saying? Sorry, take care of both. So we need to honor pain management and sleep management, both of them. Now, if I can get a corollary to this, which we'll come up to in a moment, is that a very important topic in this day and age is now being more attentive to that of chemical dependency. So if a person is having you more or less healing from chemical dependency, come off of alcohol, some other type of very strong drugs, I find is that their sleep is very disrupted. And guess what happens when their sleep is disrupted? They tend to want to go and go back to using again. I was literally on the phone yesterday with a recovery center saying, what can we do for sleep? And I said, thank you for calling me. I go, I've been calling out on and off for the last seven years saying, please figure out what you can do for these folks to sleep because they have taken the great step of recovery but you've got to help them heal so they can go deeper into their healing. So please know that pain isn't just the physical pain, but it's the mental, emotional anguish as well. That which we can't always see or have a blood test for, but it's real. Something else to always consider, medications. And let me share, when I read um, certified for my sleep medicine board certification, this was the area that I spent much more time looking at, understanding that most of our pharmaceuticals out there have a connection to sleep. It doesn't surprise me more that I think of it, but antidepressants should be looked at. We should also take a look at beta blockers of which are very important for heart health, but there's a slew of things that should be looked at. Not saying stop all your meds, that's not my point here, but my point is be curious, add it to the list. Some of my best mentors back in academia, Dr. Burr and I both have a comment, a link to Baltimore and Johns Hopkins. Those mentors would always say, review the medicine list. And I'm going back to reminding myself of the earliest discussions we've had. Caffeine, one of the most famous chemicals out there. I want to not say yes or no to caffeine, but I want to mention to you that caffeine blocks the chemical that puts you into deep sleep. So if you have it in the second half of the day, close to nighttime, even though you might fall asleep, as Dr. Burr is speaking, you might not be getting all the deep sleep that you want. So let's I love people fall asleep when I'm speaking. <laughs> Uh, beer interrupted. Let me make another comment. We, yeah. There's a lot of uh, comments going back and forth uh, while you're speaking about the book, Why We Sleep. Oh, we'll, yes. We'll Dr. talk about that. It's a great book. Uh, many times in my life, I've used the uh, audio book to go to sleep. <laughs> uh, and he's very, he's very positive about that. But just... while you're talking about pharmacy, he makes a very strong point about people that need, think they need to use sleep meds mm -hmm. and the impact on that. Do you want to, you want to talk about that while you're talking about pharmacy? Yes. Yes. Thank you. Uh, oh gosh. Thank you for slowing me down to take a look at it. We do know that a lot of sleep medicine can help people be able to get some sleep, but I want us to, as I think you beautifully said earlier, buyer beware. What do we do when we jump you know, the train track, so to speak, and use a medicine. Now I want to say like, if somebody's having gruesome pain and coming to me, I'm not just going to say, Hey, let's just kind of breathe through it. I do want to be compassionate always to somebody getting, having troubles, but I like to talk about medicines this way. If I may think of it as a bridge, not the Island, but in modern medicine, five, 10, 11, 12 minute visits, how much time do we have to understand why we're having difficulties getting to sleep, staying asleep. And I'm not trying to, fault anyone out there, but I'm looking more for solutions 
uh, above just presenting the problem is that if we do not spend ideas of understanding what's going on, we may try to quickly use an antidepressant and its sedative effects. We may look at a benzodiazepine, the famous anti-anxiety medicine, and the cousin of those benzos called uh, Ambien, Lunesta, Sonata. And I understand these things are powerful and they do help people. So if you at all are taking a look at the medicines, can you take a pause saying, okay, why am I needing this medicine? Not what do I need, but why do I need it? Always ask the question why, and then go deeper into understanding that if you are going to be on a medicine, how quickly can you revisit it? After a week, after a month, how soon? And I want you to hear, I have, and I probably will prescribe these medicines, but anybody who works with me rolls their eyes saying, oh, we got to talk about it again this month. I'm like, yes, we need to talk about it because we need to unveil why you're on these medicines. I classically have people who've been on other uh, medicines with other doctors, and I spend so much time looking at it. I partner with them very much. The one other thing which I want to bring to mind is stress and distress is the most common reason why we need a medicine. In other words, we don't need the medicine, but why we jump to the medicine. Cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia called CBTI. Why am I going to bring this up? Is because the world has changed. Last I read about four or five years ago, it was published. There was only about 500 therapists trained in cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. It looks at your thoughts and your behaviors that can disrupt or misalign your sleep. Please make note of this app. It's free and it's written by some of the best people in the field of insomnia. It's called CBTI Coach. It's written by some of the great minds at Stanford and the VA hospital. And what I want you to know is that it's government funded, so it's free. It's a download. Now, downloading and just having your phone is not gonna give it to you. You actually have to use the app and go through it more. But it's one of those things where if we got ourselves a chance to be curious, to create a dialogue, I know it doesn't go from A to B as quick as a med, but meds do not treat everything. It's a Band-Aid. There could be some healing underneath that needs to be unveiled. Let me pause there. Dr. Burr, what thoughts there do you think we should highlight even more or what thoughts am I not yet touching on the meds that you have also come across? Uh, thank you. And specific to that point, uh, at least in the book, and I've seen evidence before that Yes, you uh, you tend to feel like, oh, I, I got to sleep. I used that sleep med and I got to sleep. But once you start looking at uh, the analytics of the quality of that sleep, most of the um, most of the sleep meds help you get to sleep, but they really uh, sometimes even short term, but especially long term, end up having a negative impact on the quality of the sleep because your body starts developing some dependence on those. Can I add one more point? Yes. The benzodiazepine, Xanax, Valium, Ativan, Clonazepam, they're cousins of Ambien, which is the most famous one. I'm gonna use my hand just to represent some of the science. Imagine this is where the medicine clicks in. In medicine, we call it the receptor and we, we turn things on. So we know when a benzo, Valium, Xanax, Ativan comes in, it clicks. It gives you anti-anxiety, muscle relaxation, and sleepiness. It gives you a little bit of everything. Ambien comes in, but it doesn't click. It rubs at the same spot. 
And what it does, it gives you sleepiness and a little muscle relaxation, but not much for anxiety at all. And what we know, since it doesn't click, it's not as, as habit forming. It's much harder to bring somebody off of Xanax, Valium, Ativan. It can be a grumpy weekend or a grumpy week to bring somebody off of Ambien. But what I want you to know on both of these classifications of medicines, it's a muscle relaxant. It also relaxes these muscles that you have. Mm. What do you have there? You might have worsened or induced your sleep apnea. Wait, wait, choking somebody? But they're sleeping through it. They don't even know that they are choking. So when I have somebody who's been on medicines long-term and they're new to me, or I need to look at them and say, okay, you want to take a sleep med test? Oh, no, no, doc, I'm fine. You don't need it. I'm like, great. I'm prescribing it. It's a controlled medication. I get audited as I need to be. So please, you need to do this because I can't be choking you at night. How many times I've been able to pick up apnea because somebody's been on this medicine? And what they've done, rather than being diagnosed, they've been given medicine that basically blankets their symptoms. Dr. Breer, have you seen people also struggle with this in terms of undiagnosing things because they used a medicine to cover up what's and underneath at all? Oh, sure. And, you know, I lose friends all the time when I get to the next um, part here, alcohol. Let me just come on say, I'm not telling you not to drink, but I'm talking about quantity and timing. And everybody's liver is a little different how long it takes to clear cap, excuse me, clear alcohol out. But the basic discussions, this is older data. Now we're doing much better genetics on the liver detoxification, meaning how long does it takes for the liver to clean it up, clean out any substance. But the older data shows that it takes roughly seven hours to reduce your caffeine by 50%. Excuse me the caffeine and alcohol, what we find is that it roughly takes basically for every one drink you have, it takes two hours of time to wash out of your body. So if you take a nightcap, the first hour, you're more relaxed, but so is your airway. You ever notice your bed partner snores a little bit more if they've had a nightcap? And then what happens, the second part is a bit of withdrawal effect. But say you have a double before bed. You have two hours of potentially choking, not sleeping well, but people feel that they're asleep and then two hours of a bumpy brain. But the first one to four weeks, people say, this is great. I'm shutting down my mind. I'm sleeping better. What tends to happen is that people get less benefits of the alcohol for sleep after about four weeks, but the side effects of the bumpy sleep on the second half. Now I have people joke. So you're yeah. telling me I should drink in the morning. No, I'm not saying that. And people joke, so well, I should just have eight servings of alcohol so I can sleep through the entire night. I'm like, no, that's not going to give it to you either. I applaud people's creativity, but that's not going to get you there. So please know, beer, wine, spirits, it's a discussion, but the nightcap, please. Number one way around the world, people try to get to sleep and stay asleep, and it is probably the least helpful thing, not only short-term, but definitely long-term. Dr. You see so often where people think something helps me sleep, and it helps you get to sleep, but overall, it's a, it's a fool's bargain. Because so of that second half of the sleep cycle. The next bullet point there at the bottom left, room environment. Let me summarize. Every single night, mimic nature. Cool, comfortable, dark, and quiet. What happens outside? Cool, it's comfortable more, dark, quiet. Whatever you can do, because if you take a look at it, internal, external, meaning our internal bodies resonate with the outside environment and vice versa. Honor your room environment. Please, whatever you can do, declutter the bedroom, 
make it peaceful. Make sure that you and your bed partner are able to do this together. So, so important. Medical conditions. This is when I have to have my medical hat on. So people are now missing this, but less so. There's a 90% overlap between depression and anxiety. 90% overlap. So what I want you and I to know is that the depressed brain and the anxious brain, the depressed body, the anxious body, has a harder time getting sleep and staying asleep. But if you can help sleep, you help the depression and anxiety, you help the depression and anxiety help the sleep. Mental health has got to be a discussion we have out there. We just need to honor it with the sleep. Menopause. When estrogen goes down, some of the other hormone levels go down, what do we know? It also has been shown to have collagen, like our skin takes a little bit longer to kind of push, pull back into our body, but the air pipe, that of the trachea gets softer and muscle mass gets softer. I know a lot of you ladies here are like, thanks Parm, enough's going down, down during menopause. Now you want to add this, but honoring menopause is a time of shift to not only diagnose, but also discuss what are the right ways you and your medical team can look at it. There's a controversial set of data about giving estrogen to improve apnea. And there is some benefits, but estrogen discussion for heart health, which I'm sure you guys have perhaps uh, at least touched upon, and also understanding, is it really the one way to be able to help? But just please appreciate menopause, even if there's no weight gain, has been associated with more apnea that's out there. It's not causing, but an association, which means be curious about it. Very important, the bladder. This is confusing. Let me try to simplify it. Question though, how many times is it normal to get up and use the toilet at night to empty the bladder? Zero to one is normal. Two, normal-ish. Three or more, please talk to your medical team. Why? Because three or more times, we know that it actually might be disrupted sleep. And you're like, oh, I'm awake. Let me go use the the washroom and empty my bladder. I'm not saying that it can't be a kidney, bladder, men, the prostate issue, but how many times when I have somebody use, having frequent urinations at nighttime, that was my clue to look at their sleep. Early in my career, I didn't know that. I just worked up everybody for urinary tract infections, make sure the kidneys were okay, men talking about the prostate, and then maybe talking about you know not drinking too many fluids before bedtime. And all those are important but also add a sleep disruption could be triggering awakeness and then more awareness of the bladder. Stroke. Dr. David Wright has uh, a few minutes ago asked another question about pre-sleep behavior. It sounds weird, but one of the, uh, one of um, a large portion, over half of my patients are men. And I think a lot of it is because uh, over half of any YouTube channel tends to be men. YouTube is a male orient for some reason, a male attracting uh, uh, social media. Um, one of the common things I have to counsel men on is after 3 p.m. in the afternoon, really be careful about fluids because, it, you know, you think of pre-sleep behaviors and we'll have to talk about that. We'll have yeah. to have We'll have to finish with this slide, do a little bit of Q&A, and then I think have you on, have you back and talk about some of the, some sleep hygiene, some of the other things. Um, but you, you talk about sleep hygiene, you never really see that comment or you don't see it very often. 
for men, especially middle-aged men with prostate problems, your bladder has grown larger and uh, you need to think about that. Yes, as of three in the afternoon, really start thinking about how much, how much fluid you're bringing on board because 12 hours later at three in the morning, uh, you're, it, it could be having an impact on your health by waking you up. So important and thank you so much. Yes, we need to honor our 16 hours before bedtime, but let's talk about those last, that last eight hours, the last three hours, the last hour before bed. Um, you know what, that's something I, I, I did a talk years ago that talked about T minus sleep, like, you know, 12 hours before sleep, eight, maybe we'll bring that back. That'll be a fun discussion maybe to kind of think through how does daytime set up nighttime? We could do it a little bit more rich. I think that'd be worthwhile. That'd be fine. And just so therefore the last four will be more intuitive. When you disrupt the brain, it can make sleep much more difficult. The great Dr. Alan Hobson out of Harvard sleep is by the brain for the brain because of the brain. So please appreciate sleep health helps brain health. But one of the things that I find so devastating, somebody who's been diagnosed with the uh, mini stroke, a stroke, and no one's looking at their sleep. Somebody has been diagnosed with Parkinson's or something else, and they're not looking at their sleep. I want to beg you to be curious anytime a neurological history, especially with directly to the brains involved. Similar heart disease in terms of heart attack or atrial fibrillation or any of that. We used to say there was a 50% correlation between atrial fibrillation and that of apnea. And I'll share with you, I used to look so smart. Oh, you have history of atrial fibrillation? Let me go ahead and do a screening test on your sleep. Like, how did you find out? Like, what was the clue? So the only clue was your atrial fibrillation. The more recent data I've shown said it's a 75% correlation. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That is really impressive. Now, here's the other thing. If you're not treating the apnea, you're going to need more cardioversions, meaning shocks, to get yourself back in rhythm. So yep. we do know it's not just an association. Unhealthy sleep at nighttime with poor breathing is going to worsen that and create much more of an intervention need. Last two, but I'll lump them together. When your body's immune system is angry, we think of it as hot in many of us in the field. A hot brain, I'm not talking temperature, but I'm just talking about more uh, inf inflammation makes sleep very bumpy. So anytime you see an autoimmune, I'm almost classically to see a person that's having poor sleep. Now, please know that this is sometimes where I do short-term medicines to help somebody sleep just to kind of corral it because it's already overwhelming, but it's gotta be short-term because we've gotta get underneath it all and really help people with their treatment of their immune health. Vitally, vitally important. So at the very bottom there, sleep helps health, help health helps sleep. It's not an either or discussion. Hopefully this slide has helped you see how they're all connected. I'm sure this has prompted questions, thoughts, and jokes. What do we, we have? We've gotten a lot of them. We've got questions about things like valerian root from uh -huh. looking for a name. We've got questions about uh, multiple people are set, talking, asking about uh, anxiety and sleep. Uh, another person saying, can you do subtitles so we can find out the different places to, uh, uh, to go look in the video? It's a great idea and we will, we're, we're not quite geared up yet for it, but we'll start some of that discussion next week. So lots of, lots of interest today, lots of questions. And again, I think we'll, uh, we'll have to plan on having you come back and maybe talk about, uh, sleep hygiene. Mm -hmm. 
T minus uh, time period for uh, going to sleep and some of that. So Bart saying happy Thanksgiving. Thank you, Bart. Same to you. Um, Parker Reed, thank, ha happy Thanksgiving. Wish you could have visited. Evidently, Parker was down in uh, Pensacola. Very, very close to uh, the Alabama project. And actually, we about 10 years ago, we did the same project in Pensacola. So we still have a lot of friends there. Um, <clears throat> E.T. himself, cool music. Well, thank you, E.T. We usually get a lot of complaints about. Uh, well, I won't go there, but thank you, E.T. Functional medicine's catching on. You know, uh, Dr. Daddy, I don't know if if you get this, I used to have a lot of friends, a couple of my residents uh, that I trained when I was um, uh, a faculty at Hopkins in the preventive medicine program, went on to be the, uh, the chairs or presidents of the American College of Preventive Medicine. And uh, they, uh, uh, Mike Parkinson, um, a couple of others, big, big leaders in, in this field. And uh, Mike was was very uh, open and and uh, very emotional. Had a great uh, EQ, good emotional quotient about it. But some of them were not so so generous. Uh, some of them were very critical of quote functional medicine. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think I, I, I think functional medicine does deserve some of its issues. Sometimes uh, functional medicine docs aren't quite so critical of the science that they look at. Now, if you go to the American College of Preventive Medicine, much, much more critical about, about the science. But unfortunately, the uh, ACPM has been slow to come to, the, come to the field in terms of dealing with one-on-one -on -one medicine. We've gotten there now, but uh, I think, you know, that's one of the reasons that you see other groups like functional medicine uh, coming on board because prevention is not just for public health. It's for the individual. Thanks for uh, thanks, E.T., for letting me get some of my own uh, uh, rant in. Uh, Parm, do you have any comments about that? Yeah, so it, all these conversations, I love the fact that, you know, we need to, you know, first and foremost, I think what you do most beautifully is, you know, begin, continue with the persons individually. And right now we are using a lot of science as a way to convince people and science is out there, but we have to use the science and get their science, meaning their understanding, get to know them and knowing how to connect things. You know, to me, I also have been in a world that I've, I've looked at functional medicine more. Somebody once told me it's like a rock tumbler. Sometimes you get a gem out of it and other times you've just taken people through a few cycles and you've kept them very busy, um, which obviously none of us want to just do that to individuals. We want to be able to be looking at it. But I think always, whenever you look at somebody giving an approach saying, okay, I understand the science, why does the science connect to me? And I think that's that touch that you do so beautifully for it, is how do you personalize it rather than just give people information? We're in the information age. I mean, it's paralysis by overanalysis. It is drinking from a fire hydrant. And therefore, like, could Valerian work for everyone? I mean, the thing, and I'll look up more, um, it's, I love these questions because I don't get these all the time. One of my um, remembrance is that some people with a ragweed allergy, you want to be really careful with valerian because actually it could more disrupt them and they don't even know that mm. they're having some of that kind of a challenge there. 
Um, I I've didn't had know people that. Yeah, and I'll look it up just to make sure that I'm not misquoting it. It's either that or the chamomile. But something tells me chamomile isn't it, but I'm going to double check. You know, the, the side effects are always there. I mean, I have people who tell me um, that valerian can make di digestive um, symptoms. And then that's because we don't know the dosing because many of us are not naturopathic physicians and saying how to use it. But let me share, valerian's been out there for a long time. It's usually combined in all the other sleep aid combined products, passion flower, hops, valerian, magnesium. So these things out there are commonly used, but the hard part is to understand the individual con um, congruency with it. And what I find with just about every sleep aid, after a period of time, the body gets numb to it. My thought to that isn't that so much the medicines become dull, is that we just haven't taken care of the underlying issue. So again, let's take a look at things that have less harm and more benefit. I've had a lot of people tell me valerian has been a savior to them, and I think it's fabulous, but let's not stop there saying, oh, I found valerian and I don't need to go any further. I think that's a way in which I think it's good to couch. How do we bring in personal eye medicine, but keep the conversation going because we always have to find root cause. Yeah. You know, it's um, so tired looking for, na for name. Uh, that was your question. I hope you got some good content out of that. I would underline uh, that last comment, that last place you started to go. So many people come to me wanting to focus on uh, supplements for, uh, for heart attack and stroke prevention. You know, for every area of preventive medicine, uh, sleep included. Uh, yeah, uh, sometimes procedures work, sometimes devices work, sometimes uh, prescriptions work, and sometimes uh, supplements work. But nothing works like behavior. Oh wow! And we will uh, we'll talk about that again uh, multiple times. I had to make the comment that uh, sleep is the major determinant for improving atrial fib, as uh, as we discussed. Uh, yeah. Vitamin sleep. Yeah. You, you will uh, if you lose your deep sleep, REM sleep, you'll have more insulin resistance. For at least 48 hours. And as you pointed out, uh, very well, maybe much longer than that. Uh, no trash in heaven. Thanks for, for an algorithm boosting. Good morning. Uh, hit the like button. That hints to help with the algorithm. I don't think anything helps with the algorithm nearly so much as referring this and posting this content on your, um, your Facebook, your, uh, your Twitter, your uh, Instagram because when viewers come in from another uh, social media, the, uh, the algorithm recognizes this and says, hey, we just got somebody from Facebook. What brought them in? This content. So thank you so much. If you, if you like the content, if you really want to help us uh, get it out there to others, uh, refer it to your social media. Can I, bring, can I throw out a question to myself, to us? Sure. Because I think this one will come up. And I just thought of this right here. Sleep trackers. I'm sure many of you are hearing uh, Dr. Brewer and I talk about getting your deep sleep. Can I tell you? Uh, oh, right on. Which one are you using? It's, um, I don't, you know what? I should know that. I'll figure it out while you're talking. Well, here's the most important thing. Regardless of what any of us are using, the science is coming. But let me give you the, the difficult answer that none of us want to hear. It's much better of telling us a total time of sleep, what time we got to sleep, what time we woke up. It's not the best at telling us how many times we woke up, and it's not the best to tell us in terms of deep sleep and light sleep. Hear that last part. 
It's not the best to tell us about deep sleep and light sleep. Most yeah. of them are using an algorithm of movement. So yeah. we do know movement is correlated with different stages of sleep. Which one do you have there? Uh, it's the Fitbit for sure. I think it might be something like Fitbit Vista 2 or something. Does that make sense? Yes. And then I, I'm amazed, I think, just because I was moving around this morning, I didn't I forgot to put on my Apple Watch. All of them are getting better. And when Inspire I want... Inspire 2. Inspire 2. Yeah. What I want you to hear is this. This might make sense. I wish I had a ruler on my desk here. A ruler is better at measuring a straight line than it is something that has twists and turns. Right. So if I have something that has an irregular border, a ruler is not the easiest way to measure. The tracking devices are much more accurate when you have healthy, typical, standard textbook sleep. Mm. It's not as easy to measure something that's bumpy. How many of us have bumpy sleep and therefore would want to use, you know, a ruler to figure that out? So what I want everyone to do is to look at trends in terms of their sleep tracking device. But please, I beg you, do not get so tied onto what the data is showing and sharing. We still know the best way to know about deep sleep and dream sleep is brain waves. And unfortunately, some of the great devices that were out there 10 years ago meant that you had to wear a headband. How many people want to be a fashion statement at nighttime wearing a headband? Not a lot, basically very few. Despite great science, these companies could not be sustained because people would rather have something like a ring or a movement. Now they're using oxygen, using heart rate, they're using breathing metrics. All of them are getting better, but they're not quite there yet. So don't use it as a diagnostic as much as it's a curiosity, direction of more or less. The more or less is best in terms of total sleep time, getting asleep, waking up, using that kind of circadian balance there. So I apologize. I meant to talk about it earlier, but I didn't want to lose that thought. It's a great point. I'm glad you brought it up. You know, I avoided these. I refused to use one of these for years. And I finally, Janice, my wife, got me one a year or two ago. And I said, okay, I'll try it. You know, it was that kind of thing. I'll try it. Uh, didn't want to show total disregard for a gift. And I started looking at that. And there are still times when I'm crystal clear, it's got to be wrong. However, it really has improved my awareness a lot. I am, I'm glad I'm using it. Even, and it's clear, this one uh, leans mostly on uh, heart rate variability. I, I would say, you know, for example, with clients that I love to work with, um, I, give, I encourage all of them to allow me to do that. And I've participated with dashboards so I can watch people day in and day out just to kind of get trends and ideas and comments. So that way I can look at it. I really am excited about the future, yet we don't have the ruler that we want to have. So not so much buyer beware, but just be aware of what information you're getting rather than using it as the full beginning, middle and end. Very good. So Peter Itzi, uh, after a couple of years on keto, blood glucose is about four to five millimoles. Uh, Peter's in, I think, Scandinavia, but obviously not in the U.S. with those kind of numbers. Uh, after a slice of cake stays about 10 millimoles for several hours. Yeah, I doubt very much that you've got, uh, you've got some challenges with your insulin resistance and your ability to m metabolize it, Peter. Thank you for sharing that. Till the next morning and over six millimoles for several days. Yep, you've got some challenges. Um, if you haven't had a, a glucose tolerance test with insulin uh, response, I would uh, suggest taking a look at that. 
and we might be able to help if you'd like. E.T. himself, low-dose metformin, perhaps. Yep. Well, that's certainly an option. Uh, there's a whole bunch of other things, just like, um, just like we were talking about with sleep. The big, uh, the big guns are really in lifestyle and behavior. And uh, there's nothing more important in terms of dealing with uh, insulin resistance than diet. As we've been saying multiple times, this is a show with um, most content today on sleep. Sleep is very important, far more important than most of us have acknowledged in terms of insulin resistance. Um, body fat content's a big deal. Exercise is a big deal. And then after you get through these lifestyle issues, at that point, things like metformin, drugs, supplements uh, are the next consideration. E.T. himself. Thank you. Uh, Why We Sleep, it's a great book. So I initiated that comment while you were talking and we got several other comments about it. Wanted to ask you, you talked about um, waking up uh, and they talked about, I think it was adenosine, uh, yes. that second second uh, phase. You wanna make a comment about that? So, I, so, more in deep, so more in the first half. So we do know ATP, um, just really simple for any of us remember biology class. ATP is energy, and every time you take off one of the phosphates, you're going to have more eventually adenosine buildup. So when the adenosine is left over, it, when injected in different studies into brains, it induces more deep sleep. So adenosine is blocked by what? Caffeine. So please know that activity and movement is not a luxury. It's not a thing that you do when you have uh, you know, the, all the stars lined up. Look to get it in every day that you can. And the better adenosine that you have, the much greater opportunity you're going to be able to be able to get that deep sleep, which again, cannot be mimicked with supplements by themselves. Thank you, uh, Parm. Parker Reed, while we sleep, got it based on your recommendation. Agree 100%. Peter Utsio, Utsi, why we sleep is available as audiobook as well as for those who want to listen. I have to tell you, I, I read maybe, I, I've read this thing, at, I've said multiple times, I've read it at least eight times but I have to sort of estimate it because as uh, the, um, the author suggests in the very beginning, it's uh, Walter, what's his name? Oh, I'm blanking on the, the author's name. It's oh, um, um, Walker, Walker. Uh, yeah, what, so, Matt, Walker. Matt Walker. Yeah, Matt, Matthew Walker suggests, he said, sleep is very important. In fact, if you fall asleep while you're reading this, that's a good thing. Um, <laughs> And it, believe it or not, for three or four different periods in my life over the past eight years since I've had the book, I used it specifically to go to sleep. And many times I have early morning awakening problems, big problems with those. Uh, my dad had those. And uh, while we sleep, the audio version is great if you have that. So get that, consider using it. And that's why I can't really say whether I've read it eight times or not, because, you know, it really doesn't count as reading the whole thing when I'm uh, I'm starting on chapter six and I wake up and it's on chapter eight or chapter or I'm finished the book. I only made it through a chapter or two while I was awake. Jonathan Hull. Good morning, Dr. Brewer. I've heard that that taping. Oh, I'm glad I'm glad we got to this one, Parm. He wants to, to ask about taping your mouth at night. 
to improve sleep quality. As, as you mentioned, and I failed to mention a couple of things about our background. As Parm said, we've, uh, we both uh, did some training at Hopkins. I went on to be faculty at Hopkins in prevention. And uh, Dr. Uh, Dedia is a uh, your certified sleep doctor, correct? Yes. So you yeah. get the question a lot about tape. What, what are your thoughts? And there's a bunch of stuff on the Internet about it. What, what's your response to that? So thank you. So important. And by the way, the, the discussion is still evolving. I have to say, when I first heard about it, I'm like, hmm. And then I thought about it. I'm like, quite curious. So one of the things that I find is people need the tape is because when their mouth is open, when do we tend to more mouth breathe? When we can't nose breathe. So please appreciate if you're thinking about tape, my first question is, can you breathe through your nose? And we live in a dirty world. Please know that I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just kind of calling it for what it is whatever you can do to open up the nasal passages. Something that's been historically used for over 2000 years is saline washes of the nasal passage. I'm not pretending it's pleasant. I'm not pretending I'm gonna win any you know, fans out there by asking them to irrigate with nasal saline, but I want whatever we can do to look at allergies to open up the nasal passages. So that's the first step to take a look at there. And even with that best discussion, people might have a difficulty. So therefore, open up nasal passages would help the mouth stay closed. But then in terms of looking at it, some people's architecture, their jaw, everything else, they're going to have a preponderance of opening that. By closing the mouth, you're more forced to breathe through the nose, which humidifies air. And we know a dry mouth is one of the most unpleasant experiences. And in the middle of the night, it can be a, a major cause of awakening. So yes, use the tape. Be curious about it. But please, if you're using the tape, then I beg, I hearken us to look at nasal passages. What I haven't spent enough time recently, and this is an admission that I always love to be able to be transparent, is some people are using these things called trumpets. So they look like little funnels and they're putting in the nasal passages so that if there is a buildup, something called the turbinates, something that is the soft tissues inside the nose, it gets past them. And people are using other devices. Nasal breathing is a much more humidified air and it helps people breathe much better. Thank you very much. Uh, just a housekeeping item. I've got patients starting at one o'clock our time, uh, and I have some things that I need to do to prepare, including lunch. So uh, we're going to need to see if we can uh, make some time up as we go through the next few. This was Dr. David Wright's comment. Dr. Wright has appeared on this uh, channel and hopefully will appear again soon. Um, he's working on, a, uh, on an app. Uh, called My Health Plan. Uh, we'll be able to talk about, I think we'll be able to talk about uh, some of that. But uh, again, David has talked a whole lot about lifestyle. His point today was there's this, that science article talking about um, sleep problems as a final common pathway for dementia. Parker Reed, Super Chat, five bucks. Thank you so much, Parker. Again, uh, Gilbert is co-hosting with me in the background. Gilbert, Gilbert lives in the Philippines. And these uh, these super chats, five bucks, 10 bucks, uh, tired looking for name actually gave us 20 bucks uh, this, this morning. Those make a difference, especially in some of the economies where we're outsourcing. So thank you so much, Parker. Uh, now this is... Uh, uh, again, as I said, there was a lot of response and chatter about the uh, the book. Um, talking uh, Ms. Hamilton, eighty seven, talking about you, you as you mentioned pain and orthopedic issues. Yeah, 
anything anything of any body part that can be disruptive to sleep can be a big deal. Uh, we talked a little bit about pharma. Uh, as I said before, tired looking for name, gave us the $20 super chat. Thank you so much. And ask the question about valerian root. Anything else you think we need to uh, mention about valerian root or did we cover it pretty well? Yeah, and I think that for the next chat, I will we'll bring up the common supplements and we'll talk about that. That's a beautiful point. We have to. Very good. Um, and as you were talking about uh, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, CBTI, and I put on there on the, the comments, CBTI coach. Uh, and Parm, if you could, when the video comes out, if you could go ahead and put a comment right up at the top. Send me a text when you do. I'll pull that comment up to the top so that uh, okay. people can can know Thank how you oh, yeah. to access you and oh. things like that if you'd like to do that. Beautiful. Um, <clears throat> Innovane. I'm not familiar with Imovane. Uh, so if I'm not mistaken, Imovane is very similar to um, Lunesta and Ambien. It is the United Kingdom uh, in, uh, uh, version of okay. that so it okay. works very similar to all of that and you so safety wise there and i'm, I'm going to be really transparent sometimes these medicines can be very helpful to individuals but they'll be given so vast and far away you've got to check and you've got to always double check to make sure do no harm as part of the oath so et himself yes there can be you know people who do very well on these medicines but i just would say stay curious every year that i'm renewing a medicine i have to ask person place and time is it still lining up Leo Acapulco downloaded the app. David Wright, uh, pearls for best practice on pre-sleep behaviors. We'll get to that uh, at a later uh, later installment of the sleep series. Uh, tired, we're talking about nightcap. Uh, tired looking for names says, after the nightcap, I fall asleep just fine. But I wake up in a couple of hours and mm -hmm. stay awake for a very long time. Thank you so much, Tired. Because, you know, it's one thing for a bunch of old academic docs to get up and talk about something. It's something very, very different when when a, a real human being on the other end of that uh, uh, trans that publication transmission says, yep, that happened to me and it happens to me every time. Can I just throw out one concept on the nightcap? And this is going actually to Dr. Wright. Because I always want to get some pearls. One of the things is cooling down the core to help with sleep. Warm shower, warm bath for those of us who can tolerate it. When you come out, the ambient temperature, I mean, the room temperature cools the core and it's been shown to relate to inducing deeper sleep. So please, perhaps, cool, comfortable, dark, and quiet. So not so much cool while you're in the shower, a hot shower, hot bath. When you come out, you're cooling. Yeah. So please take a look at using your bedtime as a spa time. Beautiful smelling salts, warm, fuzzy robe. Make sure that you might have something very nice on the tongue. So use something like that. Give that a try, if you will. I've been amazed how many postcards, emails I've gotten over the years of people saying, I'm doing it. You create a break from the day you just lived and you can taper into the night. So that might be instead of a nightcap, just kind of a nighttime ritual. So speaking of the book, Matt Walker's book, While We Sleep, uh, he does a, he covers that uh, warm versus cool shower very well. He, he, and he makes the point that, yeah, people think about a cool shower, but and that may do somebody cooling uh, immediately. But what it does is it is it pulls the blood, blood uh, away from your, it vasoconstricts you. It pulls the blood away from, from your skin so you don't cool off too quickly. The result is your core starts heating up. And uh, if you do the opposite, go ahead and, 
take a warm shower, that vasodilates, that gets your blood open up, uh, your blood vessels near your skin open up. You, uh, you, it, it becomes an air conditioning unit, just like the, the floppy ears of an elephant. So love it. Just as you uh, mentioned, thanks so much for sharing that. Now, Leo Acapulco made a comment about um, anxiety and several other people you know, piled on and said, yeah, I've got b big anxiety issues when I wake up as well. I know you talked about uh, several things, uh, slowing down the breathing, making sure that you prep for that moment early in the day by getting a lot of activity, burning up a lot of that adenosine. Uh, I think you also talked about uh, meditation. Uh, you talked about CBTI. Uh, any other comments in this space of anxiety at an early morning awakening? So let me share the stress curve. Low stress, we have insight. High stress, I'm red hot. I'm ready to put my fist through a wall and every human being can get red hot. I don't have much insight up here. I have much more insight here. So many people tell me they'll start doing some of the relaxation techniques, but after they're more red hot. What I wish for all of us, I don't know who doesn't have some stress or distress on the planet at all. If I could say to all of us, whatever we can do to practice every night being present, present in the breath, when you're, pre when you're with your breath, it's not so much about the perfect breathing. I purposely don't tell people how to breathe. You can't breathe into the past. You can't breathe into the future. You only can breathe into the here and now. Stress and distress occur because we say shoulda, coulda, and what if, what if. Those are stressors that we can't put our arms around because it's done and it hasn't happened. Breathing, being more present, being able to be more in the moment, that's what it's about. And guess what? When you focus on it, your mind will drift, curl up a smile, everybody does it. Even the Dalai Lama has talked about it, but he's been meditating since age four or five. I just made that up, but you get the point that he is a person that also has this human brain. Now, what I want us to do is do it every night. Because like anything else, I want to teach you something. Why do we go down this path? If I told you 50 nice things, Dr. Brewer, and said one negative, rude comment to you, as a human, you tend to remember. The rude comment. And what do we tend to do? Neuroplasticity, <laughs> we cycle on what's wrong, right? Rather than the 49 compliments, if there was something wrong, and that's who we are as humans. And I'm glad you can smile and, and laugh because it's not in the middle of the night that this is cycling on us. I do this for a living and in the middle of the night, I'm like, wow, this thing is taking over me right now. And it's usually not until I'm down into, you know, the rabbit hole that all of a sudden I'm like, okay, get back to your breath. What can you do to be basically more present? The great thing about sleep hygiene, which is controversial because people feel it's overdone, but what it tells us, if you're awake for 20 minutes in your bed, get out of bed. So trying to get to sleep or back to sleep, but wait, don't go on the computer. Blue light wakes up the brain or any light. Do not necessarily start doing dishes, laundry, like dirty house syndrome among most of the patients seemingly want to talk to me about that because they want to be productive. Go do something soothing, relaxing, something calm, and go back to bed when you're tired. Sometimes you just got to break that cycle. We have Velcro for the negative, Teflon for the positive. We got to be in the present moment. Shoulda, coulda, what if, what if. Breathe every night. Don't do it when you have time or when it is all of a sudden obnoxious. Do it when you will benefit from it, meaning every single night. So those nights that it's a hurricane, you've built up that muscle to be more positive. Because if you don't do that, excuse me, not more present. I purposely don't want to say positive. I want us to learn about being present because knowing the negative loop will happen if we don't practice it. I took like a full course I do on stress and anxiety 
right there down into just a few nuggets of time. So Dr. Brewer, I can come back and we can talk about this at a much greater length. Because to me, if we can be more in the present moment, people can follow the opportunities that you speak of and look at all the questions. People are brilliant. Their IQs are off the charts. Yeah. But we bring them into the moment, they can access their IQ and give it to themselves and to their health. I will tell you this, we've got, uh, speaking of which, we've got so many really good questions coming up. We're not going to be able to manage all of them. If you don't mind, uh, Parm, what I'll do is is mention a few of them that uh, I'd like to um, to get back to if we could yeah. uh, on the next one. Uh, a sleep chronotype. Ah, uh, yes. Um, turning ourselves into diabetics by eating late at night when our mm. organs be uh, resting. Um, uh, uh, magnesium glycinate uh, and CPAP, is that a problem? So if you could make notes and, and see if we can be sure and cover those items yeah. uh, on one of the next videos, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, I do so want to make uh, two other comments before we go. Uh, John Tucho says, look, Doc, I just retweeted today's episode. Uh, easy to do, and you should follow it if you're on Twitter. Now, here, one of the questions is, well, how do I do, I do that? John went on to tell folks. The link is in the info below today's video. So please, if you, um, you want to help us out, that's a great way to do it. Um, uh, make it possible for... Uh, others on uh, on other social media that are following you to come back and uh, and link back to our videos. Again, we're trying to get some very helpful information for folks in terms of uh, sleep today. Um, Aura Ruth, good to hear from you. Uh, she was talking about uh, when she was young, her mom put in desperation. I think uh, Nanny put uh, alcohol rum in the in the bottle and. Uh, some comments about that. Thank you so much for sharing. Uh, Rose talking about uh, eating yogurt and that, that keeping her up all the night. So more comments about that. I do want to say a special thank you to LPG 12338. He gave us a $100 um, super chat. Thank you so much, LPG. Again, this makes uh, a significant difference. You know, Parm's a doc, I'm a doc. Uh, our time is expensive. But on the other hand, uh, this is a great way to get a lot of information out to a lot of people very, uh, very effectively. And when folks like you, LPG, come in and say, you know what, I want to acknowledge you guys for what you're doing, that really helps us get that information out there. Um, we are over 100,000 uh, subscribers now. One thing that's interesting, and um, we were just talking about a, a, a major step in our growth um, for our content uptake. For some reason, the, uh, we have, we've gotten into a, a, a download uh, thing. I, I forgot what you call it. Um, Oh, it's 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 a thing where you can go in, you can download our content and listen to it offline. Um, it's just an, another way of doing these things. Oh, podcasts. So we've got podcasts on all the big podcast channels. Uh, um, the the Google channel, several others. Just over the past week, China has become one of our top five podcast um, 
uh, markets. So who would have thunk? Very, very interesting. Thank you again, uh, LGP uh, 12338. You're helping us uh, get this content out across the world. Uh, Parm, anything else you want to say before we sign off today? Gratitude. Gratitude to uh, you, Dr. Brewer, what you're doing. Gratitude to Dr. Wright. He's the one that connected us. Uh, not only his questions are fabulous, but his kindness and his passion, which has been uh, in a beautiful way uh, inspiring. And all of you that are on this, because without the questions, without knowing this is you know, landing in your heads and your heart and also that of the health, the health that you want to live, keep asking the questions. We love getting information out there. And as you know more, the world's going to know more. Thank you. Keep coming back to, to let us chat. And thank you as well. Look forward to the next video in the sleep series. More to come. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit our website at prevmedhealth.com. To learn more, watch our videos on YouTube at Ford Brewer MD MPH. Thank you very much for your interest.